This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. Ross Gay is a home gardener, a community gardener, and an award-winning poet and professor, author of Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, as well as The Book of Delights. Ross is a founding board member of the Bloomington Community Orchard, a nonprofit free fruit for all food justice and joy project. Ross teaches at Indiana University, and he joins us today to share more about his garden life journey. He'll start by reading us his poem, Burial. Burial. You're right. You're right, the fertilizer's good. It wasn't a gang of dullards came up with chucking a fish in the planting hole or some midwife got lucky with the placenta. Oh, I'll plant a tree here. And a sudden flush of quince and jam enough for months. Yes, the magic dust our bodies become casts spells on the roots, about which someone else could tell you the chemical processes. But it's just magic to me which is why a couple springs ago when first putting in my two bare root plum trees out back, I took the jar which has become my father's house and lonely for him and hoping to coax him back for my mother as much as me, I poured some of them in the planting holes and he dove in glad for the robust air, saddling a slight gust into my nose and mouth, chuckling as I coughed but mostly he disappeared into the minor yawns in the earth, into which I placed the trees, splaying wide their roots, casting the gray dust of my old man evenly throughout the hole, replacing then the clods of dense Indiana soil until the roots and my father were buried, watering it all in with one hand while holding the tree with the other straight as the flag to the nation of simple joy of which my father is now a naturalized citizen, waving the flag from his subterranean lair. The roots curled around him like shawls or jungle gyms, like hookahs or the arms of ancestors, before breaststroking into the xylem, riding the elevator up through the cambium and into the leaves where, when you put your ear close enough, you can hear him whisper, good morning, where if you close your eyes and push your face, you can feel his stubbly jowls. And good Lord, this year he was giddy at the first real fruit set and nestled into the 30 or 40 plums in the two trees, peering out from the sweet meat with his hands pressed against the purple skin like cathedral glass. And imagine his joy as the sun wizarded forth those abundant sugars and I plodded barefoot and prayerful at the first ripe plums swell and blush, almost weepy, conjuring some surely ponderous verse to convey this bottomless grace. You know, oh, father, oh, father kind of stuff. Hundreds of hot air balloons filling the sky in my chest, replacing his intubated body, listing like a boat keel side up replacing the steady stream of water from the one eye, which his brother wiped before removing the tube, keeping his hand on the forehead until the last wind in his body wandered off, while my brother wailed like an animal. And my mother said, weeping, it's okay. It's okay, you can go, honey. 
at all of which my father guffawed by kicking from the first bite buckets of juice down my chin, staining one of my two button-down shirts, the salmon-colored silk one, hollering, there's more of that, almost dancing now in the plum, in the tree, the way he did as a person, bent over and biting his lip and chucking the one hip out, then the other with his elbows cocked and fists loosely made and eyes closed and mouth made trumpet when he knew he could make you happy just by being a little silly and sweet. Thank you so much, Ross. That poem is just, mm, it's everything to me. Mm. And to hear you read it is such a joy and a delight. It is the garden, it is life, it is um, sadness and joy, and it's such an honor to, to speak with you today. Thank you. It's good to talk to you, too. So you are a poet, but you are a gardener, and every interview that I have read with you really focuses um, to a large extent on your, your wordsmithing, and I really want to speak with you not only that uh, or about that or on that level, but I really want to speak with you as a gardener because it is such a powerful connective tissue in everything that I have read of yours. And more than your poetry, it is what draws me to you mm. and to this conversation. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your your garden life right now and and then we'll move back into like how this grew into such a powerful mm, thing in your life, both physically and emotionally and intellectually. Yeah, well, right now, you know, um, it's becoming fall here in Indiana and in Bloomington where I live. And we're getting ready to put the garlic in the beds and we're pulling out all the peppers and you know, turning them into pepper flakes and hot sauce and pulling the tomatoes and all that. And so, yeah, it's that kind of turning time of the year where one thing starts to go away and then the next thing, my partner and I have a little garden. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a nice sized little garden, but we just live in a town lot right in town. And um, we grow greens and we grow, you know, we grow kale and collards and salad greens and garlic and potatoes and we had a nice little sweet potato crop hmm. and lots of peppers and um, cucumbers and some herbs, basil, oregano, stuff like that. So yeah, that's kind of like what the garden, that's what the garden at, at the house is. Yeah. My sense through your writing is that like many gardeners, your garden is absolutely integral to your everyday life, to what you look at, to what you eat, to what you think about, to what you feel. And it then extends and sort of spills over into how you see the world and how you see your walk from your house to your work or through streets or visiting other places. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, it feels like a lucky orientation to be constantly thinking, oh, what's happening out there? What's happening? What's growing? What are we going to, you know, make for supper that's growing out there, you know? And you're right. It probably informs, not probably, it absolutely informs the ways that 
even as you said that walking my you know my walk from home to school to where I teach or whatever, you know I walk by, I ride my bike by. I ride my bike by this group of pawpaw trees that is actually right next to this kind of community greenhouse that we're working in, and you know for the last like three weeks I don't know if you know what the pawpaw is, but it's oh, the yeah. in, okay, <laughs> it's it's unbelievable this fruit. But this is kind of the first year that I've ever gotten to have more than a couple that I got at the market or something. Like there are these pawpaw trees that are just so abundant. So I've been eating pawpaws every single day for, you know, the three or so weeks that they're making the fruit. And it has been, you know, but it's a kind of orientation. Like these trees now are, now these trees are giving. So it's time to go buy those trees or, you know, the the pear tree down the street has its time, and that's time to sort of swing by the pear tree and yada, yada. It, yeah, it's, it is. It's a kind of orientation that feels so, so lucky. It is, it is such a lucky orientation. And um, your use of that phrase really, like, hit in my brain when I heard it because I find gardeners are oriented in a particularly joyful and interconnected way that is important to kind of lift up. So I think it is lucky, but I also think it comes from conscious or unconscious cultivation and mentoring and modeling um, in this world. And tell us about how this came to be an orientation for you. What were your earliest influences and, and places and plants and people that cultivated this orientation in you, Ross? You know, I think um, I, I, whenever I think about this, I always sort of, I'm never quite sure exactly where, but I can say, you know, my mother's family, my mother grew up on a farm and we would spend some time with my grandparents most summers from the time I was probably, I don't know, about nine years old until the time I was about 14 or so. And we would spend, you know, three or four weeks with them in Minnesota. And they had since then moved into town and they were they were no longer farming, but they had this, you know, really sort of abundant, beautiful garden that had food and also had like flowers. And part of the way that they sort of, you know, like the first thing we would do, I think this is right. The first thing we would do when we got into town, like my grandparents would want to spin us by, you know, there's Avis's garden and there's Seal's garden. And, you know, like that was just one of the things that they did. And mm -hmm. although at the time I wasn't like, oh, yeah, let's go see the gardens. At the time I was like, I want to see my friends and go, you know, play some baseball or basketball or something. That was a seed. <laughs> and um, so I do think that's one of the things um, that mattered as a kind of modeling, as a kind of, you know, it was something beautiful and something that we were a little bit encouraged to do, like dig some potatoes or snap some beans or something like that. Actually, and to keep going with that, there were these county fairs that my grandfather would take me and my brother to, and we would, he would take us to these fields and we would steal a little bit of <laughs> people's grasses, like if they were growing barley or they were growing, you know, wheat or whatever. Uh -huh. And you enter it into the fair. I forgot about this until right now. And, um, <laughs> And, you know, because my grandpa, he could see all of, oh, that looks good. Like, let's take a little bit of that. He probably knew the person, too. So so we'd take a little snip of that. And then we would enter it into these county fairs. And not a lot, it was the Wadena County Fair. Not a lot of people were necessarily 
you know, entering these things. So it wasn't like the competition was real steep. <laughs> <laughs> but we'd have our little things. And we were these kids who grew up in Pendell, Pennsylvania, you know, like right along I-95, just outside of Philadelphia. It wasn't, this was not our life back home. But mm-hmm. here we got to have this experience. And we'd have some of these, you know, um, whatever you call them, entries or something. And we would get little ribbons. We'd get, we'd actually get a little bit, you know, we might get a couple bucks and we can go get French fries at Dory's for, for our labor. So that was, that was, that was actually deeply influential as I'm saying it and recounting it. I realized that was deeply influential, but I also want to say like, we grew up in an apartment complex just North of Philadelphia and we didn't. We didn't have like a garden at home, mm-hmm. really. I mean, my mother had, there was just like a little, little spot where my mother would hang in patience and she might put in like a few marigold plants or like a lily that to this day, the smell of this kind of lily is one of my favorite smells on mm-hmm. earth. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also lived right next to, there was kind of a woods between the apartments and I-95 and we spent a lot of time in that woods, like a lot of time. And on the edge of the woods, there were raspberry bushes. And, you know, just a little bit further up, there was a mulberry tree right on the edge of the apartments. And there was a deep, um, there was a deep learning that was happening in those spaces, you know. And it might not look like a, to someone from the outside, it might not look like this kind of uh, magical space. But to us, we were, we were deep in this little kind of rusty creek learning all about things. Mm. It Spaces like that, especially when we're children, I think, I don't know, it seems to be pretty universal that those kinds of spaces for us as younger growing things um, are so profoundly influential and they teach us so much without us even noticing that we are learning it, much like the garden for me now in my much older age. Mm -hmm. And even put your finger on what you're learning um, for for some time, unless you really, really think about it later. So you you learn about the natural world through acts of your mother's and your own undirected time being formed in this woods and then real sort of hands-on modeling with your your grandparents. How does gardening then grow in in your life, Ross, from from being a boy to then launching out on your own? And where does it kind of ebb off and then come back into the main flow of your life? Yeah, you know, I I became sort of a serious gardener when I moved here to Bloomington. And I mean, there were many things sort of happening at once. One was that my my partner is a serious gardener, so okay. she was she was sort of regularly sort of talking about gardening, and it was that. Another thing is that, and I think I remember this right. I think I remember riding my bike by a group of people working at a garden that was connected to something called Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, which is a a food. Um, food pantry here in Bloomington, and they have gardening programs. Mm -hmm. And I think I stopped, and as I recall, it was my buddy Bryce, who was not yet my buddy, was there, and maybe turning some compost or doing something. And I just was riding my bike around. I'd newly arrived, um, just started teaching probably that, you know, month or something. And I 
just asked what was going on. And then I kind of helped out. And then I kind of found out about this gardening project, which I then became involved in, in a sort of more serious way. So coming to Bloomington, where there is like a serious culture of gardening, like it's, you know, you ask someone what if they're gardening and it's there's a good chance that someone, you know, a lot of folks are going to be talking about that or mm-hmm. growing something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, I had a little yard for the first time in my life and, um, you know, wanted to, wanted to grow some stuff. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Ross Gay is an award-winning poet and author, a professor at Indiana University in Bloomington. As a whole person, he considers his orientation toward the beauty and abundance of the growing world to be a beautiful and lucky orientation. The sense of wonder and gratitude permeates all that he grows and all that he writes. We'll be right back for more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. So if you listened to the podcast last week, you will remember that I had a request of you, a favor I asked of you. That's right. I wanted you to send me the titles of children's books that had been deeply influential to you or your children or your grandchildren or your nieces and nephews or at the story time at your local library. I'm trying to build a bibliography of good books that hold solid messages of natural and cultural meaning and value. Just as Ross shared with us in his early story, the messages that he received from his unstructured time outside, the messages he received from his mother who was a gardener and his grandfather who had him pick plants and flowers and bits of grass to take to the state fair. What we read to our children and what our children here read to them are part of the formational groundwork on which they become nature-loving and gardening people. And those, my friends, are powerful people in this world. We all start somewhere. And with books and with gardens, we have a better start than ever. Please send me your titles. I would love to share them forward in the upcoming episode on gardening and natural literacy and children's literature how the two relate, and how we can make them relate even more powerfully. Okay, here are the instructions again. Please send your favorite children's book titles to me by email or by voicemail, little voice memo, just record it on your phone, send it by email to me, cultivatingplace at gmail.com. Your deadline for this is December 15th. I can't wait to get them. Thank you. Okay, back to our great and poetic and beautiful conversation with Ross Gay.
This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Ross Gay's poetry and writing is deeply informed by his love and close observations of, as well as joy in, gardening and the growing world. Having just shared some of his earliest influences leading to this love, as we come back, he's describing his first serious gardening years in his own backyard in Bloomington, Indiana. It was late summer. I would have been about 32, I think. Yeah, and then and so it would have been the next year that I had a little house of my own mm-hmm. and, a, and a garden there that I would. So I'd been 33 when I probably started gardening, seriously. Okay. Which makes uh, me a new gardener, which uh, makes so many things <laughs> incredibly fascinating to me. Like nothing is old news to me, right. you know? But I find that in gardeners, no matter how old they are, they're always learning something. You're always, there's always so much we don't know, mm-hmm. which is which is great. It's incredible. Yeah. So you've been in this garden for how many years now? Um... Now we kind of, there's a, this, well, I mean, my partner moved out to Bloomington recently. So um, Stephanie moved out in three or so years ago. So we've been in a house right next to um, my first garden. So mm-hmm. it's right, almost, almost touching. So the garden that I was just talking about with the sweet potatoes and the tomatoes and the peppers, that's our little garden. And we've been there for three years. But there are trees at this other garden that, and bushes and lots of other stuff that I planted. Some of them I planted with friends um, beginning 12 years ago or something. Okay. And, yeah, so so you're not exactly new, but maybe you're like a teenage gardener, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm like adolescent. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, okay, so I, I just have to ask because this is always of interest to me. Stephanie is also a big gardener um, mm-hmm. and – do you garden well together? Do you do things together? Do you divide up tasks? How does that work in the garden? I think it's together. It's a lot mm-hmm. of together. Um, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily one or the other does one or the other. She might have a different take on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask her next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I think we pretty much team up on on, on things, yeah. And there is this constant thread of the edible garden, of, of gardening for food and nutrition, but mm-hmm. it is so permeated by your appreciation for the processes and the beauty um, that it's as ornamental as it is edible. Am I, am I right when I say that? Absolutely. And, and I do think that's, that is something that Stephanie is more acutely aware of, the sort of you know, I didn't grow many flowers before, and I think I was kind of learning more about that. And so I think, like, this expanding the notion of uti- of what the quote-unquote utility is. So, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, I feel like I am more inclined than I was, say, 10 years ago to um, understand a really beautiful flower as deeply useful. Like, you know, I think I get that better now than... Yeah. That I did, a, you know, couldn't eat it, you know, but now I'm sort of, you know, I want to be able to see how all these things are beautiful. And I also want to plant things that I know are beautiful. Yeah. So at what point did 
the garden and the processes and gifts it brings to you become a major element in your in your creative thinking and writing and both poetry and prose? Such a good question. I feel like like even if I kind of look back at my books, you know, my first book was written before I was sort of gardening seriously. My second book was written kind of at the beginning of my gardening seriously life. And my third book, The Catalog uh, of Unabashed Gratitude, was written really in the midst of where where really I was sort of, this is one of the things I'm really doing is gardening. So how did you say the question again? When When did you notice it become... Uh, the garden. When did you notice the garden become a major kind of collaborator in your poetry and your your prose? Yeah, yeah. It was. It, yeah, it was with catalog. And yeah. the other thing that happened was happening in a kind of, or was in the midst of happening, and it's still in the midst of happening. But was that I became involved with this community orchard here in Bloomington, the Bloomington Community Orchard, and that started in 2010. And, you know, it's, that's just like this incredibly beautiful project to me. And it's basically this um, project that was dreamt up by Amy Countryman, uh, who's a dear friend and who, who lives here in town and was an undergraduate finishing her undergraduate thesis and on, on food security and food systems. And she kind of was writing about urban orchards and... Her advisor recommended she talk to the urban forester in town. And the urban forester said, well, if you can show support for this project, we'll let you use this acre and we'll give you a little bit of, you know, a little bit of financial support. So Amy had a call out meeting and lots of people showed up and I was one of them. And, and then, you know, in a certain amount of time, there was, you know, we broke into committees. It was the most wonderful sort of... <laughs> beautifully ragtag experience um, of making something together. And I didn't know any of these. I don't know if I knew anyone in that room. And those people have become some of my, you know, dearest, like, beloved friends, you know. And the kind of spirit of that, of that project, to me, was always that we're working hours and hours and hours and hours. It was hard work. Um, mm-hmm putting that together and we're working all these hours for something that you know a fruit tree might not come into full production for eight or ten years or we planted these nut trees recently that will not come into full production for a century maybe and this thing of working with people who you did not know before you were working on this thing for the for the benefit of people who you may never meet who you may well be long dead by the time they're able to eat the fruit of this gathering was to me like some of the most profound, meaningful, life-changing work that I've been lucky enough to be a part of. And I feel like that experience, which was a gardening experience, yeah, was probably one of the things that entered my poetry, my writing, my thinking, my kind of ethical orientation and probably set it on a certain kind of course that, that, you know, that I don't know otherwise it would have been set on that course. 
I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Ross Gay's books include Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude and The Book of Delights. Both books are beautifully permeated with the knowledge, joy, and metaphors offered by the gardening and growing world. We'll be right back for more with Ross. Stay with us. Okay, so thinking out loud this week, when I say that gardens and gardeners are intersectional agents of powerful, powerful change in this world, Ross Gay and his gardening impulse are everything to do with this. Him, his students, the trees in the communal orchard, the community of humans related to the community orchard, and we all are related to that community orchard. This embodies the perfect fact that gardening is an ethical orientation towards generosity, abundance, care, joy, and love, toward an inherent and perennial sense of giving thanks. Hold on to this. We are, as Ross so eloquently offers out to us, we are beholden to and by this very rich understanding of how we want to live and grow. Now, back to our conversation with Ross Gay, poet, gardener, human, who is unabashedly grateful and a gardener. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Ross Gay is a poet and gardener whose work, as he says in both cases, is often about how we are actually tending not just to the growing world, but to one another. Before this break, Ross shared his deep appreciation for having serendipitously become involved in his Bloomington Community Orchard, a free fruit for all food justice and joy project. Ross sees this involvement and its communal gesture of caring for one another through growing food as having fundamentally shifted his understanding of gardening to an even more expansive plane than had he only understood gardening's gifts alone or with his partner, Stephanie. I imagine it still would have been a really rich and beautiful way of sort of orienting. But in terms of what my, I'm talking about my writing now, my sort of creative life, my creative life is really, is really informed by that community gesture, that gesture of like, how do we how do we care for our neighbors? Which I think is in a way the fundamental question of that orchard. How mm. do we care for each other? And that's kind of what my work is. You know, it, it's more than about the home garden. It's actually about our, our tending to one another. Yeah. And I, I will be so bold as to say when you say tending to one another – you are talking about not just human one another's, but all of the living beings that become our community and our friends and our... To whom we are indebted. Yeah. To whom our very lives require. Yeah. We, we are absolutely indebted and we don't exist without them. Right, right. And 
I think, you know, when I, I was first introduced to your work by a friend of mine, um, Leslie Bennett, who is a garden designer here in California, and she shared a poem that you had written uh, in memory of, in honor of, in both sort of grief and celebration of Eric Gardner. And she shared that and we began talking and she said, you should absolutely interview Ross. So I began reading your work and I was just so pulled in, like immediately because of the complexity of how you see the garden, how you experience this interrelationship with plants and food and soil and mycorrhiza as being just fundamentally the same as what being really alive is, including all of the elements, whether it's, you know, feces or it is procreation or it is um, the beauty of a baby or a flower. And what a, what a place to study that. What a beautiful place to study that a garden is. Yeah. You know? Yeah, What a beautiful place to study. <laughs> you know it. Yeah. Like, you, you know, to, to sit and witness the to witness the things that the pollination, for instance, and as you know, as a gardener, you get to be able to see the more pollinators than people who don't garden are able to see. Like you're able, you know, we just get tuned into like, oh yeah, there are many, many, many um, creatures making all of this happen. Right. Which and and to know that, like there are all of these things making us happen that we cannot see. Mm-hmm. as a kind of practice of gratitude, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so here's a question I have for you. After reading um, Bringing the Shovel Down, which was published in 2011, and then moving to the catalog of Unabashed Gratitude, I see this from the outside as a gardener who wants to see what I want to see, Ross. Mm-hmm. I see this beautiful, um, hard not not always easy, not always pretty, but I see this uh, shift in your orientation informed by your what I think is newfound, relatively newfound at this point, love of the garden and the teachings it brings. I see this this shift towards gratitude and joy, even in the midst of carnage and horror and rage sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think that's accurate. And I do think, we're talking about Lucky earlier, I do think there is a kind of, I mean, it feels lucky to be able to um, witness the abundant caretaking that the earth is doing. To be able to witness that, it feels lucky, and again, a garden again is a place where we can practice that. There are all kinds of places to practice that. Looking into the sky is a place to practice that. But a garden is one of the places, and you know, you can eat stuff out of. Right. <laughs> um, but to be able to witness that, and to be able to then, from that witnessing, be like, it could be otherwise. You know, like yeah. we. The, there are all of these these things happening that we are lucky. We are lucky. And, you know, when I talk about gratitude, I'm talking about that deep, interconnected, interdependent indebtedness that we are indebted 
we are indebted to one another and the great one another, you know? And um, it feels, to me, it feels lucky to be beholden in that way, you know? Beholden, a word, a word that I was looking up, looking it up, which means bound in gratitude. And it's such a nice, um, you know, with that word hold right in yep. the middle of it. It's such yep. a beautiful, gentle, embracing, loving word. And I read through the, the poems in the catalog of unabashed gratitude. And I just kept finding more and more parallels between what it is to garden and what it is to write a poem or process an emotion Mm -hmm. and you just use the word witness and there seems to me to be this direct correlation for you of all of those things of what it means to witness even the hard things like Mm -hmm. processing you know poems about uh your friend don belton um things about race in our country, things about being a man in this world. Uh, And they're all sort of being processed in the garden, being witnessed there, and then being processed and witnessed through the writing of it into these, this poem. Your, Your poems are a garden of their own. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a beautiful, beautiful way to put it. And I was just, I was just talking to someone about you know, a garden is a place where you are become abundantly aware that things are other things. You know, like again, to go back to that pollinator, is that the pollinated flower is not the pear without the pollinator. Like it's just not, you know, things are other things. And also every time <laughs> I have a big stack of pawpaw seeds because one of these pawpaws is just incredibly good. So I've just been saving and getting everyone that who's been eating these pawpaws. I'm like, let's keep the seeds. Let's keep the seeds. <laughs> um, and every, every one of those seeds has inside of it. And this is not like, you know, it's, it's just like what it is. Inside of that seed is, I mean, I was going to say millions. That's an understatement. Like, you know, zillions of pawpaws mm-hmm. going forward. Yeah. There are pawpaw trees and pawpaw trees and pawpaw trees and pawpaw trees. And there are zillions of pawpaw trees going backward. It's in that little seed that's really about the size of a nickel. And, you know, and like if you're planting like brassicas and those tiny little seeds, like then you know like, oh, right, this little speck holds in it because that brassica then turns into, say, a collard plant that makes its thousand seeds or something. And then it's possible that those thousand seeds could become another thousand collard plants, which could then... And it is like, that is all in this one seed. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's in there. Like, you get if you could get inside of that seed, you would see collards for... You would see pawpaws for... So anyway, that's like practice and metaphor. Like, the garden gives you the metaphor. Yeah. And then I think to how powerfully you were sort of your your gardening practice and your gardening insight was then sculpted by the community orchard. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the community orchard as a seed mm-hmm. of its own, yeah. you see community and community and community going forward. That's beautiful. And That's right. To me, that is 
you know, e- even across divisions. Like you, mm-hmm. you said in your original description of the community orchard that you didn't know a soul in that room. Mm-hmm. So you didn't know who they were, what they believed, mm-hmm. what they saw, what their biases were, what their hopes or, or judgments were. Mm-hmm. You just knew you were all interested in creating this orchard. Mm-hmm. And that connection across this common purpose and work, to me, is just, it's as powerful as our world gets. Yeah, yeah. I agree. And that's a beautiful observation. And that, and one of the things that I often, when I'm talking about the orchard, I often say, you know, you know, there's like a hundred fruit trees and da 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 da, and you know, it makes some fruit and it's awesome. And, but really what it does is just like you said it, it's a seed for community. And it's sort of a model for a place or an opportunity for a place to bring people together. And the bringing of people together is a seed for bringing people together. Yeah. You know, gathering, sharing, a seed for sharing. When you think about your hopes for the wider impacts of your your community orchard, your own home garden and partnership with Stephanie, your own kind of relationship to wonder and to even processing grief in this world, what are your greatest hopes for for this kind of work and why it remains important for you to integrate this theme into your your written work as a, a poet or a prose writer, a professor? Yeah, that's a beautiful question. I feel like um, I'm really interested in the ways that we share with one another. And I'm interested in like structures of care. And you know, so that orchard to me is is a sort of an obvious, a kind of a structure of care, a structure laboring toward a kind of care, an indebtedness. You know, this this notion of we are beholden to one another. You know that we are absolutely beholden to one another, and is so. It is so difficult. You know, I think of. I even, you know, I'm a professor at a college and I think like, in a way, what so much of like, quote unquote, success is, which ostensibly we're teaching people to be quote unquote successful, is about not needing to be beholden to anyone. Yeah. Um, you know, pretending that you're not beholden to anyone. Mm. Of course, we're always beholden, but we just externalize or we, you know, the beholdenness. But I, I want to, in my own life, I want to practice as hard as I can acknowledging and honoring my beholdenness, which is difficult, (laughs) which can feel difficult. And I also want to sort of honor the ways that we are just beholden to one another. And that beholdenness is inextricably tied to the ways that we have been and are being cared for, even when we don't know it, Mm -hmm. we're being cared for. And a lot of that care to come back to the garden is the care of the earth. You know, the earth cares for us. You know, and even if we don't think it does, like the first breath you take, the first, you know, thing thing we eat, like I've taken to hearing myself say my garden and then I say, it's not my garden. That event or whatever is a gift. Yeah. 
that is a gift and I'm only, I'm participating in the gift, Mm -hmm. you know, my body is a gift, you know, and I'm participating in it. When you think about the gardening world and you think about the larger world and you think about your place in it as a, uh, a a man, a poet, a man of color, a, a partner, a professor, a student yourself, what what do you see as some of the the greatest challenges that you're hoping to meet maybe in this space you've created? I mean, I guess maybe in the most basic way, and it's sort of it's it's a kind of restating of the previous thing, but yeah, um, the challenge is the falsehood of our what's the word like the American notion of like self uh, what do you call it like self. Autonomy or self-sufficiency, yeah, yeah. And, and 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 independence, or you know, the the opposite of being beholden to one another. Yeah, you know, I think in a way, like, I mean, I'm teaching this. I'm not I mean, with some grad students. We have a class, a big lecture class that we're we're doing, and we're calling it the the lab of wonder and care. Mm. And um, we're trying to really, really think hard about how we be in a space together and be making beautiful things, honoring making beautiful things, and articulating and honoring what it is that we love and sharing what it is that we love, you know? Yeah. And it is so fun. (laughs) It is just so fun to do that work. And... It feels like that work is probably meeting other things that are not about sharing, you know, that are about alienating, you know. So I feel like this work, this thinking, this study is really trying to articulate and wonder about the ways that the ways that we are um, for one another. Yeah. And I just like even even the title of that that lecture class workshop you're you're working with your grad students on the lab of wonder and care. Did I get that right? Yeah. Like that could be the name for for our gardens. Yeah, that's right. That's so right. Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly right. Everything comes back to gardens for me. Rob. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um because I I think it is one of those places, more than the kitchen, more than music, more than even loving another person, even a little person, um, it, 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 there's just no place that's more obvious how interconnected everything is for, for better and worse in the yeah. garden. Yeah. And, and where you are repeatedly, I mean, you are offered, you are given the opportunity to be like, you know, when we plant these seeds, thank you to the thousands and thousands and thousands before us yes. who tended to this, yeah, brought this to us. It's from their hands, and those hands come from all over. And thank you, you know, to whatever makes it possible that that these will grow, many things that will make it possible, and also gives us the opportunity when we have really good crops. Or when we don't have really good crops, to share, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. 
Like that feels to me like one of the things that a common gardening experience that is a good experience is to be like, hey, these tomatoes won't stop. Right. <laughs> Come and get them. <laughs> Go get them. Like, you know, the zucchini thing. It's too many zucchini. Come on. You know. And you think too, like I, I just had this vision of you, you know, you when you were describing the the tiny little speck of a collard seed and seeing collards going on and on and on and on or pawpaws going on and on and on. And then you were just uh, evoking the idea of being thankful for the hands that brought these seeds forward to us and these even just skills of gardening and how we how we cultivate and, and why. And I think of how many just powerful stories are held in those seeds as well. And this is through, um, I can only be grateful to uh, many women that I've been interviewing in the past couple of years for a different project. And just thinking about the embodied stories and seeds of the African diaspora, seeds yeah. of the Asian yeah. Yeah. Uh, influence or, you know, the indigenous movement right now to rematriate seeds back into their original communities. And those stories are so just full of of history that we don't get anywhere else. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So I could talk to you forever, but you <laughs> are busy. And I, I would love to finish up, Ross, if you wouldn't mind by having you end with another reading. So The Book of Delights is a book that I wrote over the course of a year. It was August 1st, 2016 until August 1st, 2017. And I, um, one day was, before that, was sort of, um, had a, a delightful experience. And I thought, oh, I should write a little essay about that. And then I thought, what would be really interesting is to write an essay every day for a year about something that delighted me. So I more or less did that. I didn't do it every single day because that wouldn't necessarily be delightful. But I did it most days. And this is one of the essays um, from that book, and it's called Pulling Carrots. Mm. <laughs> and I see, and I, they're all dated, and I see that this one's dated July 4th. Today we pulled the carrots from the garden that Stephanie sowed back in March. She planted two kinds, a red kind shaped like a standard kind and a squat orange kind with a French name, a kind I recall the package calling a market variety, probably because, like the red kind, it's an eye-catcher. And sweet, which I learned nibbling a couple of both kinds, like Bugs Bunny, as I pulled them. The word kind, meaning type or variety, which you have noticed I have used with some flourish, is among the delights, for it puts the kindness of carrots front and center in this discussion, good for your eyes, yummy, etc. In addition to reminding us that kindness and kin have the same mother, maybe making those to whom we are kind our kin, to whom even those we might be. And that circle is big. These are kinds, I'm thinking, as I snip the feathery green tops, making my way through the pile, holding the root in one hand, feeling the knobs and grains, the divots where they've grown against a rock or some critter nibbled, or the four or five of the red kind that have almost become two carrots, carrot legs in need of some petite pantaloons. The utterly forgettable magic of the carrot, which applies as well to the turnip and radish and potato and garlic and onion and ginger and turmeric and yam and sunchoke and shallot and salsify and maca and sweet potato, 
is that because much of the food resides under the ground, it probably had to be discovered, uncovered. And after the discovering and the uncovering, choosing which ones to replant and replant and replant and replant and replant and replant until there was the long red kind I'm brushing the soil from, until the squat kind piling up at the bottom of the basket. It was kindness. They are our family. Thank you so much for being a guest on the program today. It has been such a delight and a joy and an honor to speak with you. It was lovely talking to you too. Thank you so much. Ross Gay is a gardener, a cataloger of wonder, gestures of care, delight, and gratitude. He is also an award-winning poet and a professor at Indiana University. His books include The Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude and The Book of Delights, released by Algonquin Books in 2019. Ross is a founding board member of the Bloomington Community Orchard, a nonprofit free fruit for all food justice and joy project. So many inspiring ways that people cultivate their places. So many. I'm thankful for the task of trying to count them all with all of you. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. Over on cultivatingplace.com this week are some of Ross's poems shared here for you, as well as photos of his garden and its gifts, and the community orchard in deep learning in Bloomington. Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Oh, oh, I love you more and Yeah.